You ever notice when you ask someone, pretty much anyone under the age of 50, but, but even uh, not necessarily confined to that, you ever, you ever ask them, what kind of music do you like? Far and away, I find the most common answer is, well, you know, a little bit of everything. And if you follow up and, and, and press for a moment or two, they will inevitably name at least one artist or group or, or band that you've never heard of. I'm, I'm guilty of this as well. I would say, I like a little bit of everything, and I'm, I'm sort of eager for the point in the conversation where I can mention the band that you've never heard of. Um, part of that is because there really is lots of good music out there. I think it's also a sign that our culture really cares about everyone having their own kind of thing they can put on the table that is different from anyone else. No, I think this is a, a pretty innocent uh, thing for us to do. I hope it is for my own sake. But I think it is a symptom, of, even if it's an utterly innocent one, it's a symptom of a large, incredibly sweeping, incredibly deep problem in our culture. And it's something I want to spend some time exploring together this morning. Now, before I unpack a little further what I think that, that problem is, I want to spend a little time doing something that we don't do very often, or at least in my experience, we don't do it very often, which is to say a few things about what's just really good about our culture, about the modern world in which we live. I, I would start by saying I am so thankful to live in a world where how do we help the least of these? How do we help those who are weak or disadvantaged? That conversation gets an enormous amount of airtime. Doesn't mean we always agree on what the best way to do that is. It doesn't mean we always think that people are sincere. But, but the conversation around how will we provide for those on the margins, those who are weak, those who are hurting, that has been something that, that's a conversation in our culture unlike any culture ever before on the face of the planet. And I'm grateful to live where that is a conversation that gets a lot of airtime. I think there is something in postmodernism. I think there's actually a certain kind of humility that can happen in the postmodern spirit that actually makes it easier to work across the aisle. When it doesn't mean we always do, doesn't mean that that's all the that postmodernism does, but there's something about that sense of, you know what? Maybe in the old days we were a little too sure that we could figure everything out and be absolutely certain that we were right. And there's been a good sense. I think even groups like the Biblical Counseling Coalition, the Gospel Coalition, Together for the Gospel, those the sorts of, hey, let's gather around the center here kinds of movements, it's no accident that that is a very plausible idea in a world affected heavily by postmodernism. I even think the idea that you can be anything you want to be and follow your dreams, there's a nice way in which that really does encourage people to connect their gifting with their vocation, and I appreciate that very much. Uh, Greg Forster, an author and, and Christian educator, says, the more ardently you love the modern world, the more power you will have to reform it. Isn't that a sweet way to put that? So as we talk about problems in our modern day, I'd love us to just start with a reminder that there are some really sweet opportunities that we have. All is not dark. All is not lost. 
Having said that, of course, our focus is on modern problems. We wouldn't need to have a whole conference about modern benefits, right? You know, those you're just going to have, and you'd probably be okay to take advantage of those as you go, right? But, but I want to think about modern problems, and I, I want to start us out very simply by saying, I think there is one particular thing we can call the modern problem, or the single most significant thing, overarching, filters into, seeps into everything else in our modern world, in our modern culture. And of course, when I say modern culture, that, that's a silly phrase. There are many modern cultures, and those can be based on your region of the United States or region of the world. It can be based on your ethnicity, right? There's, it's different to talk about what this is like if you are black or if you are white or Asian or Latino, right? There are, there are many different cultures all intersecting and, and subcultures within each of the larger cultures. But, but when I think about our culture, I'm talking about the blend of all these things together, the intersection of all of it in, in at least the Western world. I, I think there is one simple modern problem we can speak of. And so the outline for the talk here is, is pretty simple. I want to talk about what the problem is, and then I want to talk about what the solution is. The problem and the solution. Not, not too complicated, so hopefully you've had a chance to write that down if you're taking notes, uh, and I won't have to repeat it again, right? Well, what is the, what is the core modern problem? It, it's actually, of course, nothing new, right? There are no truly new problems in the human heart, in the human experience, right? The, the human heart struggles with the same things since the garden and the fall. It's pride, it's selfishness, it's insatiable desires, it's every version of wanting to be God and to say, my will be done. That, that is sin in a nutshell, and it is our problem, and it, and it plays out again and again in every culture, in every context, in every era. But I want to look at one verse in the book of Judges, and I want to dig into this particular verse because I think it captures, in a, in a particularly apt way, the, the specific underlying modern problem that we face. And in order to look at this verse in Judges, to get to our, our modern problem, we, we need some context. We, we need to unpack, so I'm going to briefly unpack the entire book of Judges for us, and don't worry, uh, I will be finished before uh, evening falls. Uh, but, but in talking about the book of Judges and giving us context, I need to start by just saying one of the great blessings in my life was uh, a father who, who loved me, raised me in the faith. He was a professor at Westminster Theological Seminary in Old Testament, and he was actually working on a commentary on the book of Judges when he died of cancer in 2007. And so I had the opportunity to hear an enormous amount about what he was working on in his, in his last days. And so what I'm going to be sharing with you is heavily drawn from, from my delightful opportunities to learn from my own father. But the book of Judges follows the book of Joshua. So it starts with Israel coming into the promised land. The people have been led by a godly, faithful, upright leader. They are in the promise, and it has gone well. And then a generation arises who does not know the Lord, who did not see his works, who did not remember what the Lord had done. And things spiral downward quickly from there. You start with a judge, Othniel, who's, who's a pretty great guy. They're sort of filling in in the leadership void left by, 
by Joshua, and you end up all the way down in this downward spiral. Each judge a little bit worse, and a little bit more problematic, and a little bit more like, ooh, there's something off here than the last till you finally get to Samson, who is literally sleeping with the enemy, despite the blessings the Lord has poured out on him, more than on any judge before him. Now, my focus actually is not on the judges themselves, because that's the first chunk of, of the book. The, the majority of the book is given over to the experience of the judges. But then you get to chapter 17. And, and 17 through 21 are uh, actually a, sort of a, a postscript uh, to, to the time of the judges. And right at the beginning, uh, in, in chapter 17, verse 6, this desperate phrase is, is used and it says, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Right? So we've watched this downward spiral of leadership decaying and crumbling all the way down to Samson. Samson dies, but he has sort of this you know, glorious death victory. He at least brings down the enemy's temple on their heads, and, and, and yet... What, what's the next chapter? The next chapter is, now there isn't even Samson. Now there isn't anyone. There's, there is no leader. These judges have been weak. There is no king, and everyone does what is right in his own eyes. And the description in the following five chapters of what happens to a culture, to a people who have no godly leader, is far and away clearly the low point of the entire Bible. It is the darkest chapter in the history of God's people, and it's not close. The summary of it is, is very simply this. Israel, God's chosen people, the inheritors of the promised land, have become Sodom and Gomorrah. The, the, the actual wording, uh, the entire story, the way it's told, is heavily, clearly, directly based on the story of Sodom and Gomorrah from Genesis. And is saying, this is who we have become Everyone does what's right in their own eyes, and what happens? All hell breaks loose. Rampant idolatry, violence, deceit, theft, sexual predators, chaos. Even the good guys in the last five chapters are terrible. At times sort of well-intended, and, and you're flying by the seat of their pants, and I, I, won't, I won't even... It, is too, it would be too heavy on our hearts for me to even remind us of all the things that happen in those last five chapters and the horrible, horrible place where they end, basically driving out their own tribe of Benjamin as if they were one of the evil nations and then trying to bring them back in this horrible, horrible way. It is an absolute catastrophe. No king means no connection to the Lord. No one leading the people in his ways, the world falls apart. And the very last verse in the book of Judges, 21-25, is exactly repeating 17-6. In those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. It is a dark, dark chapter. I was talking with my wife, Lauren. This is before I knew that she was going to okay that picture getting shown to you all, so we might have had a different conversation had I known that. <clears throat> we're talking about, about what's going on with, uh, with Facebook and the testimony before Congress in the last week. 
And she was saying, you know, just hearing the internal documents and hearing the research and hearing what, what we're aware of about how Facebook puts us in touch with certain materials and not with others. And she just said, you know, F- Facebook is a problem, but it's amazing how much Facebook is showing us that we are a problem. Facebook, and, and in particular testimonies of what Facebook does to us, she said, you know, it's, Facebook gives us over to our own desires. And it's not just Facebook. I'm, I'm picking on Facebook because it happens to be current this week, right? But, but isn't that true? Our modern world gives us over to our own desires, encourages us to do what is right in our own eyes in so many ways, doesn't it? You see, what is particular to our modern world in a way that has never been true like this before is that there's been an expansion on the problem of doing what is right in your own eyes. You see, today, not only are we tempted and encouraged to do what is right in our own eyes, we've actually reached a point in our cultural narrative and in our technological capacities that we're being encouraged to choose to be what feels right in our own eyes. We live in a world where we are encouraged to define ourselves by our desires, to, if you will, create ourselves from the dust of the ground of our imaginations and our preferred feelings, and to breathe the breath of life into ourselves, giving and creating and calling ourselves to our own purpose and to our own identities. Indeed, in our culture, There is nothing outside of ourselves that can give us the core of who we are. There is no king now more than ever before. Now, if we did have Till Sundown, I would spend a lot of time talking about how we got here. And I would spend a lot of time digging into some very helpful resources, in particular uh, a book by Charles Taylor called A Secular Age which I imagine many of you are familiar with, and and then the more recent book by Carl Truman, uh, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. If you want to look up either of those later, I would highly commend both. And there's actually a book by the Gospel Coalition called Ten Years, uh, Our Secular Age, Ten Years of Reading and Applying Charles Charles Taylor, which has also been very, very helpful to me in thinking about these things. Let me, just, let me just give you a couple of just quick quotes from, from Truman's book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, that I think nicely capture the basic thing I'm trying to say here about this problem. He says, the idea that we can be who or whatever we want to be is a commonplace. Self-creation is the order of the day. The idea that we can shape our essences by acts of will is deeply embedded in the way we now think. To use the the words of Charles Taylor, there is an utter dominance and, and, and victory of expressive individualism. You create you. That is the highest virtue, the best and most glorious quest a human being can undertake in the mentality in which we 
live and move and have our being. We breathe this air. We swim in this water. Our imaginations of what is even possible about being good and right and true is influenced by this kind of mindset every day of our lives. So let me say it again. The biggest problem we face is that our world, our, our modern world, our modern culture, constantly drives us not just to do, but now even to be what is right in our own eyes. Let's, um, let's slow down here. This is important. I imagine the fact that you've taken the time and efforts to come to a CCF conference or to log on to this through the app and you had to set up your, your account and get in and hopefully the live stream is working well for you. Um, the fact that you've done that suggests to me that you're probably not surprised to hear the things I'm, I'm saying. You may not have heard it put quite that way, but I imagine most of you are nodding your heads. Yes, I can see. I know the sin in our hearts. Yes, I know the sin in our culture. We are, yes, absolutely, this is the temptation within us, and I especially know people in my ministry uh, realms who, who feel and, and are expressing that kind of, of temptation and, and are sinning in their hearts in these ways. And I want to be utterly clear, I think that the sin of doing what is right in your own eyes is indeed our, our deadly peril that is a right way for us to capture and think about it. What, what might be less intuitive to us, what we might need to think more about is the fact that this experience of living in this culture pressing on us with these things is actually a form of suffering as well. There is a sin in, in each of our hearts, right? There is a sin in every human being on this planet that, that responds to this, especially if you happen to live in, in the Western world. But we are pressured, this pressure to define and to create ourselves is actually a cause of horrible, horrible suffering for us and for those we love. You see, there, there is an enormous, ubiquitous, unwavering, suffocating, unrelenting, soul-assaulting expectation and encouragement on us to justify, to define, and to redeem ourselves. There's a constant message that you need to be happy with yourself, that you win by creating your own game, that you need to follow your dreams, you need to be authentic, you need to be unique, you need to be yourself. Everyone needs to feel special, unique, and different. This is a crushing, grinding, pounding, merciless pressure on every one of you and on me and on everyone that we know. It may have good intentions at times, but the message that you must create yourself is fundamentally evil. It is a catastrophic lie. And it is loud. It is pitched as freedom. But it is actually oppressive and destructive. Freedom, it turns out, 
is a cruel, cruel mistress. And the impact of this is an absolutely profound destabilizing of our very identities. The world around you is tearing at the very idea that you could even know who you are. As Jesus put it, there's a particular way in which our world is always inviting, encouraging, begging, pushing, pressuring us to build our very most core house, the very house of who we are, on the sand rather than on the rock. And so you see the temptation within, the sin within, the part of us that finds being our own God, doing what is right, being what is right in our own eyes, the part of us that is attracted to that. It's like a magnet that draws to the magnet around us, to the culture that powerfully and profoundly and repetitively says, you must be who you create yourself to be. Only that is a true life. So it leaves us grasping for anything that can ground us. It leaves us looking for an identity, feeling like we need to come up with something that will make us okay, that will make us special, that will make us enough. And I want to take a a moment or two here to think about the ways that our particular modern experience just amplifies this over and over and over again. Think, for example, think about how this pressure on us amplifies our social divisions. Think think about the the tribalism, right? And whether that's political or, uh, you know, responding to COVID or the the thousand things. Think about the divisions we've experienced. If your identity is being constantly destabilized, if you are needing to create yourself, right? Think about how it's very attractive and so much more tempting and comforting to have people around me who will affirm to me that I am in the right. We have never been so desperate. We've never been so hungry for people who will agree with us. Because if there's nothing outside of us to tell us what is right in the eyes that really matter, there is this constant, implicit message of, well, you've got to make it for yourself. And so if you agree with me, if I can draw together a group There's a comfort there. And it's amazing how easily we lean into that, right? So we gravitate towards echo chambers. And as I heard Tim Keller point out, uh, he said, actually, there's a way in which, yes, there are echo chambers, but actually we are more exposed to alternate ideas from the quote-unquote other side than, than the word echo chambers might say. But actually being exposed just polarizes us further, right? When we hear the enemy it makes us more convinced we're right. When we hear our friends, it makes us more convinced we're right. This constant us-them is so profound in a world where our, we're constantly being undercut and our ability to cling to some truth beyond our own preferences, our own desires. <laughs> I was actually uh, talking to a friend in, in the gym locker room. So, you know, we're drying off with, with our towels and, and he's like, oh, you know what, what, you know, are you taking any work trips soon? I was like, yeah, you know, I'm going to go or I'm going to be speaking at this conference. Oh, what's the conference about? What are you talking about? And so I tried to give the, the brief version in the locker room of this talk and 
uh, I'll, I'll spare you any further thoughts on that. But, but I, there was this moment for you could see him being like, wait, you're saying freedom is a bad... I, he, I could watch the wheels spinning. Of just This doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me, Alistair. And, and it was, it was this, there was this... But the moment where it clicked for him is I was, I was saying, you know, there's this way where we define ourselves competitively in opposition to other people instinctively when we're trying to say, well, I have to be okay. I've got to make myself okay. And, and my friend saw that. He said, okay, yeah, I never thought of it that way. But I see what you're getting at. Think about how the pressure to create ourselves, the temptation amplifies our tendency to overcommit. I mean, our, our technology, our, our cars and our phones allow us more access to more things we could do than ever before by orders of magnitude. The world has more access to you, and you have more access to opportunity than ever before in history. And there's a heart that says, I, I want to be known as the person who can do those things. I need to have my own special ministry, my own special way of doing things. I need to be me in the way that I live out. Even the good call to love and, and serve and minister, right? I, I think about how this uh, impacts pastors who are burning out. And, and you know, all of the, the research and the surveys and, and the anecdotes I hear suggest that more pastors are experiencing burnout now than, than ever before. Because, you see, it's not enough to simply be a faithful pastor, is it? Right? I don't know how many of you listened to the, the Mars Hill podcast from Christianity Today. But, but if there's one thing you see, it's, it's the poison of celebrity culture. Not just the poison of being a celebrity and hungering for a celebrity, but of being associated with it, right? We all desperately want to be connected to that person, to that image, right? We want to be a part of something special. We want that to be our identity, right? It's not just Mars Hill. The point of the whole podcast is saying it's, this is broader than any one church or any one movement or, or any one person. Success as a pastor so often you are being constantly sent the message. It's you create something different in your church and you hope that others will copy you. You are being judged not just by how well are you caring for your congregation, but are you caring better than all the other congregations and we have access to what they are doing. Your sermons are being compared against the sermons of every other pastor out there and even pastors who have since gone to glory well, why can't your sermons be like this, right? The incredible pressure on pastors to lead in a certain way, to be distinctive and unique, to build ministries, to preach sermons, right? Do you feel the overwhelming burden of that? I had the privilege recently of speaking to a pastor who, as we, as we were processing just a bit of, of these challenges for him, it became apparent that he ended every day utterly exhausted, and the reason he ended every day utterly exhausted is because he needed to be exhausted. Because as long as he was exhausted, he had a certain defense against the criticisms that would be brought. At least I left it all on the field. At least I gave everything I could give. Right? That's the best I can do. So if you don't like what I've done, if I wasn't enough, if I didn't give you the thing that you wanted from me, at least I'm exhausted. And so there's a certain defense there against your demands that are utterly beyond my capacity to fulfill. Think about the epidemic of anxiety 
I think I've had the chance to talk with many folks dealing with, with OCD, and I think about how having on your phone the ability to research all the things that might possibly go wrong and all the different perspectives on you name it, from theology to uh, you know, medicine and germs and you know, washing your carpet, it doesn't matter. Your ability to research is not helpful to you if you are anxiously given to wanting certainty that it will all be okay. Think about dissatisfaction in work. If you can do anything you want and life is about following your dreams, then it's really not okay to have a B-plus satisfaction in your job, is it? Right? Surely there's something better that you could and should be doing with your life. I just think about, about youth, I mean, especially the, the numbers of spiking anxiety we hear most with those who are, who are young, teens and, and early 20s. And is it any surprise that the message that has been baked into your life at every moment since your cradle is that you must do something unique and special. You must not just succeed, but you must succeed in a way that no one else is succeeding. You must bring something utterly unique amongst the eight billion people on this planet. And you must define yourself in a way that everyone looks at and goes, wow, I really love the way you're doing that. Right? Although there's actually a lot of options that are off the table because if you do that in a way that is bad to anyone else or judgment, like, can you imagine trying to build your life under that kind of pressure? The answer is yes, you, you can. But most of us are not 15 in this room. What is being placed, the burdens, the crushing weight on the shoulders of our young people breaks my heart. Is it any wonder that they feel panicked at the thought of their future? I could keep going, thinking about how it amplifies lies about body image and about shame. I could talk about the transgender uh, stuff that, of course, is so hot right now. I, I don't feel like I am what I should be, and so uh, it seems plausible that changing my very body through surgery and, and hormone therapy will be the thing that finally makes me me. I, I would create myself in this way. And right, the, the, the pounding pressures and burdens, the suffering, right? And it calls to the temptation within, right? I'm not, I'm not saying we're innocent in all this, but do you feel and hear the awfulness of the pressure. One last thought before we get to the hope of the solution. I think this goes a long way. This core modern problem, I think goes a long way to explaining the overwhelming prevalence of our addictions. Right? Why? Because that kind of pressure makes you want to run. <laughs> and that kind of technology and this kind of economy makes it so easy to run right? You can live in Netflix in a world you don't have to create, <laughs> and you can watch somebody else wrestle. You can live in social media where you can create yourself and edit out the stuff you don't want, right? Heroin is cheap and prevalent because of the systems of trade. Smartphones are ubiquitous, and so you are exposed to a thousand times the sexual temptations of just two generations ago. Really, really yummy food that's not very good for you is really cheap, and it's everywhere. Right? You are bombarded by temptation to addiction that helps you run from the pressure and or helps you cope. I'm going to keep creating myself over here, and so I just need to check out for a minute so I can keep going. We are under assault. And yes, our hearts easily open the gates to the enemy. 
wretched beings that we are, who will deliver us from this body and culture of death? Well, you see where I'm going, right? This is a big problem. It is genuinely too much for us, and feeling the overwhelmingness of it is actually a great thing because it points us to our answer. We have an answer that is beyond us. There is someone outside of us who has already created us. There's something I didn't tell you earlier about the book of Judges. It's actually not quite as simple as the entire community spiraling down together all the same way in the same time. In fact, there's a very strong contrast set up. I mentioned Othniel, that first judge who did really well on the heels of the work of Joshua. Othniel is from the tribe of Judah. Spiral down, spiral down. And this story of Sodom and Gomorrah that has now become who we are in Israel. Do you know where that story occurs? Do you know what town? It happens in the town of Gibeah in Benjamin. Know anybody from Gibeah in Benjamin? King Saul. Know anybody from the tribe of Judah? King David. Do you know when Judges was most likely written? It was most likely written down in, in, in this form during the time right after the death of King Saul when the people of Israel, all 12 tribes, were trying to figure out who will lead us now. Will we be led by the house of Saul and his son Ishbosheth? Or will we be led by the tribe of Judah, by King David? And judges could not be more clear. We need the leadership of the tribe of Judah, not of Sodom and Gomorrah. The contrast could not be more clear. We need a king who will be a shepherd. We need the man who will write Psalm 23. We need the one who has been faithful who has trusted we need. And of course, David is not perfect, and we could have a whole long discussion about that, right? But David is described as the man of the Lord's own heart. And David points forward that the lineage of the line of Judah, the tribe of Judah, and the king on the throne will never cease to be. That is Jesus himself, the true and final David, where David doesn't live up to his own need to be the right king, but he is a king who leads in right directions in many cases, right? He's the turn in the good direction. Jesus never fails. Jesus is the king we need. Here's the good news. There is a king. You have a king. And he rebukes you for your rebelliousness and your desires to create yourself your body, your social network, your career, your, your whatever, but he's also the one who rescues us from the pressures. He is our hope, not simply that we will be better people, but our hope that we have a rescuer far beyond ourselves. Famously in the movie Chariots of Fire from 1981, Harold Abrams, a, a sprinter, talks about having 10 lonely seconds to justify his existence. That is the modern problem in a nutshell. And that is not who we have to be. Jesus has given us a purpose. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, right? 
You're saved by grace, not by what you do. And so what you do is now you walk in these good works, these particular works that God has called you to. You have the opportunity to do the things God has laid out for you in your situation with the people in your life, the particular skills and gifts he's given you and been developing over the years, your particular uh, experience of sanctification. You walk in those works simply one step at a time, walking with him. Galatians 5, 6, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision count for anything. That, that was, that's another way of talking about setting up your own identity, right? Creating yourself. I am circumcised. I am uncircumcised. I don't have to be like you, right? Paul says, get rid of all those externally imposed ideas of your identity. All that counts is faith working through love. You do have a radical freedom. God has invited you to shape how his kingdom comes one second at a time because of how you choose to love in faith. And that is a delightful freedom. But it is not a freedom with a burden to do it the exact right way to create yourself. It is a burdenless freedom. It is a freedom to walk in faith that he makes you who you are. He calls us to be a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to him, worshiping him, declaring the praises of him, who brought us out of darkness and confusion and chaos into the wonderful light, knowing that who we are is very simply however we are connected to him. Brothers and sisters, this is the simple solution to our modern problem. The answer to your identity, to who you are, it's not found by looking within. It's not about knowing yourself well enough or making something of yourself well enough. It's about who you are in connection to the king. It's about who you are in connection to Jesus. It's that you are a son or a daughter of Jesus. That is who you are. It is that you've been given gifts and opportunities by Jesus to walk in with him and to repent where you get it wrong and to grow where you are weak and to rejoice and celebrate where you see fruit that he is bearing. It is to be cared for by the one who fed 5,000 with a couple loaves and fish. He is the king of abundant generosity. My pastor just preached on this and it was one of the most profound moving moments in my last year, just to realize he gives life. His ways are better. We are forgiven. We are beloved. Every morning our mercies are new. He will indeed walk behind us saying, this is the way, walk in it. And he does that by sending his spirit into our hearts connecting us to him. He does that by giving us his word. He does that by giving us each other. And every time we speak anything that is encouraging, convicting, moving, helpful, insight-giving into each other's lives, that is a little piece of God connecting himself to you through his church. Who are we? We are his children. We are his servants. We are his soldiers. We are his helpless sheep. We are his friends. Brothers and sisters, 
the, the burden of self-creation is more than we can bear. Resting in the hope of our relationship to, our connection to the king who defines us, that, that is our only hope. The book of Judges is my favorite book in the Bible. And the reason it is my favorite is because it is not the last book. The story doesn't end there. If God can keep going and bring us Ruth and First and Second Samuel and the Gospels and the book of Revelation after the book of Judges, then there is no cultural distortion or destruction. There is no personal failing that can separate us from the love of Christ. Let's pray. Oh, Jesus, have mercy. Have mercy on us where we have succumbed to the temptation to think that life is about making something special of ourselves. Oh, Lord, guard and keep us. We are pounded by the waves of the world around us. Thank you that you give us breath and life and hope. May we find the utter freedom of knowing that you have defined us. You have created us, and we rest in that. Amen.